Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. All right, so this is the Pitch Deck Asia Podcast. Did you know there are 30 million startups in Asia? And what makes yours any different? My name is Graham Brown from Asia Tech Podcast. Today we're talking to Vinny Loria, the managing partner and co-founder, well, founding partner of Golden Gate Ventures, one of Asia's most prolific funds. We're going to talk about the startup scene in Asia, particularly here in Southeast Asia as well, in the context of the later stage scale-ups, the startups that are in the retail space as well. Vinny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Graham. It's good to have you here. So a um, little bit of background about yourself as well. Um, I think we'd be interesting to talk about how you got into this space and the genesis of Golden Gate as well. So obviously you're not originally from Singapore. Where did you come from, Vinny? Uh, so most immediately I moved out from San Francisco. So originally from New York, Mm. but was living in San Francisco after college uh, for about six years, did two startups out there. Um, one one failure with a bunch of lessons learned uh, and one that was a minor success that gave me an opportunity to take a little time off, travel, and find my way to Asia. And that's a theme we're going to come back to, Vinny, how important that is. That ability to step outside your comfort zone and go and immerse yourself in different cultures and what sort of impact that has on both your empathy with startup founders and your ability to make good investment decisions. It looks like a, a fun sabbatical, but they're re in reality, those soft skills are vital for us, especially here in the startup ecosystem, dealing with companies that span many cultures. Now, a little bit of context to yourself, Vinny. Um, many people obviously know your name and Golden Gate. However, we know less about the people who are actually behind the funds. We tend to see VCs as VCs and, you know, they're of that world and they possibly stepped out of B-School or, you know, dad got them a job in investment banking. The reality is, is that you came from a different world. You actually came into this world as a startup founder. And I don't think a lot of people know that. So maybe we can talk about that story and the story of Metro, the, the startup that really sort of, you know, got your start in that world. Sure. Uh, so uh, first startup, Metro, uh, we were building a location-based chat um, back in the days of AOL Instant Messenger, um, but it would let you discover new people nearby. Uh, a lot of people are using it for dating, uh, like some of the dating apps today. Um, you know, the, the reality of like some of the lessons learned or what we were doing was that we were making a service that was like fun to use, but it wasn't necessarily a pain point. People weren't mm -hmm. saying, I need a chat app to like introduce me to new people. Um, and so that's with, you know, any startup, like if you're solving a problem, it, it's a little bit easier to grow. If you're breaking open a new sort of cultural behavior, you're definitely going to have, you know, a more difficult track in front of you. It's not to say don't do it, but you just need to know it's going to be a lot, lot harder. Do, do you see that now when you sit across from startup founders and you must get pitched all the time, day in, day out, that, that is at the, the forefront of your mind when people are sitting with you? Are you thinking, actually, is there a pain point here or are we just trying to, like you say, break open a new cultural behavior? Uh, yeah. And so if anything, you know, that is influencing <laughs> going through the idea of having to shut down a company, uh, you know, talking to investors that, you know, didn't get their money back. That has definitely influenced how I look at companies. I would have to say like 99.9% .9 of the time, 
if it's not clear to me what the pain point and the problem is, it's going to be hard for me to get to that next level as an investor. But there is that 0.01% chance. And there's a company we're looking at right now that is definitely breaking open something new and Mm. it has its own sort of risk to it. Um, And so we are still willing to take that. And I'm still willing to take that, but it, it, the, the bar is much higher. So the, the startup that you're involved in, you were based out of, uh, originally, I think the story was you were based out of Chicago, and then you moved to Silicon Valley. Was that right? The, sure. uh, yeah. So uh, the, the, my, so my co-founder, Paul, he, he grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, so the, the company started in Chicago and then moved out to Palo Alto hmm. uh, in, in the Bay Area. Right, right. Uh, you say it was like great in terms of lessons learned. Did I mean what was it like in terms of the wrap up there? And you walked away from that that startup. Did you feel immediately like oh, I've got to get back into startups? Or did you feel that you had changed a little bit in that journey? You know, what have you learned now, having come out of a startup which you know, didn't work out? And you had, I, I seem to remember, you had a lot of publicity with that startup. I know there was a lot of rumors floating and circulating about that. So you know, it was a very high profile startup as well. Coming out the other side of it, how had that changed you? Uh, good question. So yeah, it, it was high profile. I would attribute that to the time. Like that was started, you know, right at, a few years after the dot-com bust. So like there wasn't a lot. We were one of the earlier startups to, you know, come get back into the game. Uh, and so that in itself gave it a lot of uh, attention. Uh, and there were other companies like us at that time. Um, but now to, you know, it's funny, I don't really think of it as like, it's, it's not, you know, definitely at the time. And even in hindsight, it's not like, oh man, this went bust. I need to like take, you know, six weeks to like go find myself and think Mm. what to do next. Um, to me, it was just part of the, the journey and that that's even clearer in hindsight. And like, I look at, you know, the idea of failure is just part of the entrepreneurial process. Mm. You know, think about learning to walk. Uh, you know, you, you have to trip and you fall and you don't just start crying and saying, I don't want to do this again. You, you know, you just kind of as a little kid, you, you put yourself back up. If you're playing a video game, you get shot, and you get killed. You just keep playing. It's yeah. not like, hey, I need to walk away. I, I look at the entrepreneur journey exactly like that. So there's not a, you know, what I did has now bruised my ego and I need to rethink about it. It's just like, all right, you know, what's that next adventure? What's the next hill I want to climb? Hopefully it can be a, a bigger, more exciting hill. And, you know, what did I learn? Like, what new equipment do I need to take with me uh, to make this trek? Mm. Um, and there is where I can say, like, a lot of the lessons learned were, you know, around uh, one pain point, like, hey, you know, looking back, like, were we really solving a pain point? Two, listening to, like, user feedback and and changing the, the product based on that. Um, you know, making decisions based on, you know, what are the true priorities to grow the business? It was just a lot. It, it, I would say it's a toolkit I kind of walked away from to start our next company, LaFora, that made it a lot easier to hit the ground running. Yeah. Was that natural, though? I mean, coming from Silicon Valley, where those kind of failures were just part of the course, like you said, people accepted that. And they accepted the fact that if you are an entrepreneur, you're going to run into issues at some point, right? And you're going to maybe even have a failed startup, or ain't going to work out. And then you come to Asia, I think you came in about 2011, didn't you where or you started Golden Gate in 2011, where maybe i mean now we're here in 2019 things are changing especially here in singapore but if you go back to 2011 in singapore it was a different world i think in the sense that there was less startup activity there were certainly less case studies i mean 
the companies that you're involved in, like the carousels, the Omises, the Red Marts, you know, they're not in any way, if you go back to their stories, like, you know, they, they are successful case studies out there in Asia at the moment. But go back to 2011, we were scratching around for examples of people who have built startups or had failure. So coming from the Silicon Valley environment and, you know, the the first decade of this, this you know, well, from 2000, 2010 to, to Asia, 2011, it must have been a bit of a culture shock when it came to accepting failure. How was that for you in looking for startup founders or for startups who were willing to take those risks? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that question. So one, I do believe the idea of failure is like a badge of honor in Silicon Valley. And that is something that, you know, uh, a lot of it's not just Asia, but a lot of parts of the world. It, it's kind of difficult to really understand that. Um, so even just diving into that, again, looking at it's the process to walk and you have to fail in order. Like it's, it's a learning process. That is Silicon Valley culture. Um, and this is where I think Silicon Valley is unique. It's not that, you know, you grew up there and now you think that way. It's Silicon Valley is a magnet for people from all over the world. So you're naturally taking these adventurous sort of people that are willing to take risk and then are outside their comfort zone. They don't have their friends that they grew up with, their family telling them, oh, you failed. You should now, you know, take a different route. Like if they fail, they're able to brush it off because there's nobody, you know, there that tells them, uh, you know, don't do that again. Um, so this is where that, that Silicon Valley is very magical. When, now, fast forward me, yeah, I, I came out to Asia in 2010, started going at the end of 2011. Um, when I did meet startups, I, yeah, a lot of times talking about failure was not necessarily thought of as a good thing. And this is why um, my wife, Christine, and I, we actually put on an event, FailCon, uh, here in Singapore in 2012. Right. Just, and, and we invited these like really famous people, uh, including one of the PayPal Mafia guys out, that just to talk about what were failures they had in their life, where you could intimately hear firsthand from them that it's a part of every entrepreneur journey. Um, and that was definitely very eye-opening, and we got like lots of press because it was so you know, orthogonal to the hmm. way people thought. Um, but how was that event? I mean, that was pretty radical to do something like that in Singapore as well. I mean, it's a successful economy where failure hasn't really sort of become a, a public conversation, has it? So putting FailCon on in Singapore in 2012, that took some balls. What was the result? Uh, to, uh, the result was, I mean, phenomenal. It was like huge turnout. Um, you know, we weren't doing it to like sell tickets, but we filled the, the, um, the, the auditorium, which was 200 people came out. It was a very new idea. We even got government sponsorship, the national research foundation. I mean, that's really progressive. <laughs> you know, they saw, they saw the good in it. Mm. Um, and to me, this is where the word failure is really about risk. And as an investor, I am looking for people that have, are taking really big risk. You know, my investment thesis is a high appetite of risk, different than a, a real estate investor that doesn't mm. want to lose money in real estate. Um, so this is where I look at failure is just a, you know, the different side of, of the coin for risk or a different way of describing that. So mm. to me, it um, it just was natural and I wasn't really thinking it as differently. It definitely was eye-opening for a lot of people here. It definitely, that's why I got a lot of coverage and exposure of like, this is just so different. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just like the fail kind of event that happened, but there was a lot of events that were happening and we were even throwing like some hackathons and stuff. And just the whole idea of like making some mistakes, learning, iterating, uh, back in 2012, this was novel in, in Southeast Asia. And that, that's, that is why, you know, Golden Gate 
ventures exist is I, I met a whole bunch of people and I realized, wow, everything I know and thought and learned in Silicon Valley is a new different way of thinking here. Hmm. But all of these ideas and concepts could apply. And, you know, the region's growing so fast. Infrastructure projects are huge. Everybody has mobile phones. Like it's, you know, the next, de- it was obvious what the next decade was going to look like. And that's been playing out faster than I could have ever imagined. When you talk about a high appetite for risk, Vinny, how do you distinguish that from recklessness? Because that could easily be masked as something else, couldn't it? How, how do you know that if, if you sit with a founder or a team, they have a high appetite for risk and I'm willing to back them, but how do you know that's not reckless? What's the difference? That's a good question. I get like, it, it, like it, it make, it, it's almost hard for me to define because I'm like, it's just so obvious. It'd be like, you know, somebody climbing a mountain without any like rope or tools. <laughs> you'd just be like, that is clearly reckless. Like you're, you're endangering our life. There, so there, there are calculated risks. There are, you know, understanding what the downsides are and, you know, when to make changes. Um, I think the other biggest lesson I learned from my first startup that's no longer, that's no longer around is like, when do you change direction? Mm. Um, and that's something that you need to, you know, I almost think it's like a rubber band. You know, y- y- you can, to know how far you can stretch it or a balloon, how far you can blow it up, you're going to have to like break one or pop one so that, you know, the next time not mm. blow it up as far. I, I, I think startups are the same way to know how far to push in a certain direction before you figure out it's the wrong direction. You have to make that sort of mistake and you have to fumble to now know I'm not going to do that the next time. So now, you know, to measure somebody's risk and, you know, not being kind of wanton sort of crazy risk, like what is their appetite and their maturity to basically say, I'm going to try this. But if like something is not is telling me it's the wrong direction, I'm going to change my direction. I'm going to pivot. So we do look for that. So there's a maturity of founders. Hmm. The other thing is, I, I think maybe this is a little more common now, but it was definitely counterintuitive at the time. Like, so many founders I would meet that did have a minor failure, but like a startup that, you know, maybe they didn't raise money, but is no longer around behind them. I would always spend so much time asking about that. And who were your co-founders? Are you still working together? And people wouldn't want to talk about it because it was a blemish. It was failure. For me, it was like, no, you, you, you had the best educational experience in the world. You've learned how far you can stretch that rubber band and you're not going to do that a second time. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to go right up into the edge and, we actually invested in a few companies that did have that sort of experience behind them. Um, and, you know, in the early years of the Southeast Asia ecosystem, people looked at me sideways because they couldn't understand how I saw that as a positive thing and was digging deeper asking them about it. Mm. It's very insightful, isn't it? I, I'm not, there's, a, there's a great Mike Tyson quote. I think he says that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and I think, you know, in startup world, how true that is. What, what do you learn from digging into those failures? I mean, even if they're small failures, that, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as startup founders, we feel, oh, I'm sitting with Vinny and his fund could mean the difference between me getting to the next stage or not. Shall I talk about that? What are you looking for in that conversation? So a, a bunch of things. One, are like, are you still working with your co-founders of that previous company? Like, are the people I'm talking to, were you most of you involved in that previous company? And if you were, awesome. I mean, that basically says like, you went, you know, it's like a relationship. You went through a really yeah. difficult time uh, and you got through it and you still want to like work with each other because it's stressful and people are arguing and pointing the fingers and putting blame. Um, so one is like, did you go through that and you stuck together? Huge sort of check mark. Uh, that makes me interested. The second is, 
the direct questions of like, what did you learn from it? What did you think you did wrong? You know, if I hear the response of like, oh, we couldn't raise money or investors, you know, didn't realize it, then that's a red flag for me. Um, you know, this it, investors aren't there to make your idea better or qualify your idea. Uh, you know, investors, we only come you're as the entrepreneur, as a former entrepreneur, I can say this, like you really need to push the idea and prove the idea first. Investors follow that. Um, and this is where even in Silicon Valley, you never raise money for my first two startups, unless you have a, a product built and traction and people using it. Um, so the other thing yeah, is if they're pointing the finger to outside parties, mm. that that's a red flag. So th- there's some really positives I, I, I can learn from here. And then some like r- red flags to say, okay, they didn't really l- learn why the rubber band snapped. Uh, and they still need to learn that lesson. Yeah. It's an indication, isn't it? How that relationship is going to be between you and them. I mean, if I was sitting with you and you said, Graham, tell me about your previous failure. And I said to you, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the investor. They didn't come through with the money or it was IBM's fault or Hewlett Packard's fault because they didn't supply us with the the purchase order or whatever. Then you know that on an ongoing basis, it it is going to go wrong. That's the nature of startups, right? If I start pointing the finger, then I'm not going to take ownership of the problem. And that's going to strain our relationship because you want to help at the end of the day, right? But if I'm not admitting what the problem is and taking ownership of it, nothing can be done, right? So it's tough, but there you go. I mean, I think this is insightful for any startup founder that sits with you is to take ownership of that problem and be honest, right? Because, you know, by not admitting failure and by not admitting that you were the, the result of that failure, not somebody else on the outside, then you're not allowing for progress and not allowing for outside help to kind of help you grow that business. True. So... I'm fascinated, um, you know, sort of listening to people like yourself, Vinny, and, you know, you, you, and, and with this podcast, with, with anybody who's involved in sort of sitting on the other side of the table with a startup founder, is that what you've seen, you know, I, I see this as almost like talent spotting as well. You, you know, you develop an eye and an ear for, what works and like you said sometimes you can't put your finger on it sometimes it's more of an instinct about this person and people have their different theories about what kind of founders make great startups and so on you know you've obviously sat and heard a lot of stories and we talked about the pain points as a starting point we've talked about you know their past failures as well is there anything in terms of the personalities that make great startup founders? I mean, if you think about some of the, the later stage startups, if you can call them that, that you work with, like the carousels and so on, I know even call them the startup doesn't seem right, but they still have that kind of mindset. In terms of the teams and the people, what sort of personalities do you look for when somebody comes to you and says, hey, Vinny, I've got this startup and you know I need your help? That's a good question. So, uh, again, there's a few things there. Uh, there is, to me, whether you call it like an intuition, subconscious, or just gut feeling, there is something that, you know, the investor, investee, startup, uh, VC relationship is very intimate. Uh, and so, you know, it's the connection I have may or may not be a connection that someone else has. And that does form that relationship. And to me, I, I trust my subconscious because at the end of the day, what we're, we're doing is pattern recognition. You know, we're looking for people with certain traits. Hmm. Um, now, I don't want to say like what sort of personality type would make a better or worse startup. Cause let, let's just say somebody who's, you know, extroverted versus introverted or aggressive versus not there. There are, are successful CEOs and founders on, on all sides but what I would say is there's like certain traits that we're looking for, like, you know, the 
you know, it's, it's everything's a spectrum. Like the CEO should be aggressive. Uh, like if they're too much of a pushover or taking too much advice or just, you know, uh, being only led by an outside influence, you know, that's not a good thing. Um, there should be, uh, you know, a, a mutual level of respect hmm. of, you know, a, a conversation we're having and understanding and things that we will do. It's not, you know, it's not a decisions made in one meeting. We, we meet with the founders over multiple, uh, occasions. We, I take notes. My partners will meet with the founders separately without me. We'll take notes. You know, maybe I suggest something in a meeting or I ask a question. I'll take notes so that my partners know to like follow up. Did what happened? What was a lesson off of that suggestion? Um, you know, in terms of the way they answered a question, is there a way of answering it differently to see if there's really a hidden agenda there? Um, you know, specific examples would be like, let's say a company is pitching X and I say, oh, well, I've learned from sitting on the board of Carousel or something else that if you do a ABC, there's a good chance, you know, uh, D will happen. And some founders will say, oh, that's great, and write it down in notes. If my co-founder, my partner, then follows up with them and asks them, you know, two weeks later, you know, what did you learn from this? You know, that can go one of a few ways. It could mm. go, oh, I didn't get a time for that, so I don't know yet. And then if we think that's meaningful advice and they, they're kind of blowing it off, that's that's a tick against them. Mm. Um, it could go, oh, I did that and it went really well. That's awesome. Or what I love to hear is, oh, we tried that and it failed miserably and this is right. what we learned from it. That's even better. Like I'm not saying the advice I give is you know the absolute truth, but we're, we're constantly learning from startups that are pitching to us as well. But we just want to see that if something is meaningful is being offered, that there's an action off of it. Um, I would say that's one of the more important important traits but coming down to personality type i think it's there's no way to say this is the best sort of entrepreneur um but i, I think the qualities that are really important communication with, with co-founders with investors knowing how to communicate that um knowing how to you know make decisions and uh hold priorities and say i need to focus on something and not do too many things at mm -hmm. once these are the, the the it's almost like what is your your business decision tactic look like historically how do you think about this business in the future that's what we're really trying to assess but the personality type could be across the board mm -hmm. interesting uh, where are we now in if, if we look at for example here in Southeast Asia in terms of a generation of entrepreneurs coming through, you know, if you were to go back to the Valley, there's no shortage of startup founders and also people flooding into the Valley as well, because of all the reasons that you said here in Asia, what are we seeing now? What do you see at the coalface, if you like, in terms of startup founders coming through? What kind of people, because there was a time, wasn't there, when most of the startups were started by people from outside the region because they were bringing in, like yourself, bringing in new skills to Southeast Asia. Are we seeing a lot of now young startups from local startup founders? Are we seeing any trends there of interest? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think there's a lot of startups. If I look at the first few startups we invested in, Carousel, Money Smart, Trade Gecko. So only one out of those three was was foreign. Uh, the other two were local. I don't, I don't know if I've necessarily seen a shift um, the, 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 my view is this, like 51% of all founders in Silicon Valley were not born in America. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, that's Google, Facebook, uh, PayPal, um, you, you just have, I, I, I think people from different experiences and different, it, it, to me, innovation is bringing 
you know, two or three people together with different experiences and different backgrounds that see the exact same problem and all have different ideas of how to solve it. Mm. That is innovation. So the idea of, you know, whether it's foreigners and locals, the, the idea of just pairing folks up. Some of our strongest companies are, you know, even Carousel has co-founders from Singapore and Malaysia across like two different countries or uh, Caro is, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, you know, just bringing people with the, you know, even within the region from just different countries together just has people solve problems differently. And that's a really positive thing. Yeah. James Sorowicki, who wrote Wisdom of the Crowds, I think he put that to the test with the, the bean counting exercise, didn't he? With the, the country fair where he would ask people to say, count how many beans are in the jar. And they got groups of people to do it. And they found that the groups who were most demographically similar, so if a group of all guys, you know, from a certain background versus mixed groups, you know, people from different countries, different languages and so on. They found statistically that those who are more mixed and more diverse, you know, people who spoke from different languages, or you had an engineer and an artist and a designer and so on, was significantly a lot more successful at counting the number of beans in a jar, even though they couldn't actually physically count them. They're just guessed, guessing the, the beans. So there's a real case, isn't there, that, you know, you bring in the best from all over the world. I think at the end of the day, people challenge established assumptions about how things are done. You know, why not do it like that? Because yeah. I've seen a different way. So you've traveled quite a bit as well. I mean, I, I was sort of curious to learn that you spent a year out traveling before you started Golden Gate. And you sort of, you know, I don't know if you got your backpack on and went and had a look around Asia. What was the story there? Um, yeah, so it was, it was my wife and I had recently gotten married. So it was almost like an extended honeymoon. It was pure backpacking backpacks on 20 kg max per backpack and let's just open-ended explore so there was no no intent of moving to asia there was no intent of setting up a vc fund i thought i was going to go i mean i'm a computer engineer by training i thought i was going to go back to san francisco and start a third company um so it was just but it was an entrepreneurial journey it was kind of right mm -hmm. place right time meeting people seeing opportunities on the ground and so the problem that stood out to me was I had spent time in China over one year, China, India, and Southeast Asia, and also like Korea and Japan. Um, and so China was a super mature tech market in 2010. India was maturing. It had VCs like uh, uh, Sequoia were there. But in Southeast Asia, there was no VC money. Um, there was no even angels that really acted like a Silicon Valley VC. There were startups. Every startup I met said, how do I raise money? Who do I talk to? Uh, a few, I thought about writing an angel check-in. I then emailed my friends back home in Silicon Valley and said, hey, I'm going to invest in this. It's kind of a company right in your space. You've, you've built a company in this vertical. Are you interested? My friends in the U.S. said, no, we don't do anything outside of the U.S. Mm. And that was my light bulb aha moment of like, wow, like nobody's paying attention to this region. Uh, nobody with money has the experience. You know, th there might be wealthy families and corporates, but they don't have the Silicon Valley way of like approaching investment. Um, yet I can see massive infrastructure growth and construction and mobile phones and, you know, the hands of, you know, rural Indonesians as I traveled by train from, you know, uh, Jakarta to Jogja. So it just kind of stood out to me that there's huge opportunity ahead. Yeah. And you actually seen it with your own eyes as well. And that's how important that is. 
you know, I think Peter Thiel talks about, he has a question that he asks his startup founders and he, he says, um, you know, what's the fundamental truth that most people disagree with you on? And that's sort of a good indication for him of whether or not this is going to work out, you know, because, it, you know, if you agree that healthcare is broken, then, you know, everybody else pretty much agrees with you. But if you're out there saying Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, this is a huge opportunity, but all your peers back home are saying, nah, Vinny, you're crazy. You know, no, we don't invest in that. You saw yep. an opportunity. It must have been a little bit challenging at the early days, though, because, you know, you must have faced rejection and doubt like any startup founder, right? Yeah, um, very good on you yeah, for realizing that. Like, people forget a startup founder. Does, I mean, I don't even think I realized it. Yeah, like, it's not that people just give you money. We, I actually had, we had to go out and raise money for our first fund mm -hmm. exactly like a startup raises uh, money. And so we got a lot of no's. <laughs> it, it took us, you know, from November to maybe May. So that is like six or seven months to, to raise that first, you know, first close that first round of funding. So it took a very long time of hitting the pavement. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. Yeah. So people in the US did not care about Southeast Asia, people in Asia, in South, even in, in these markets in Southeast Asia, were not convinced uh that there was going to be a tech boom like i remember talking to the local families here and they're being like no you know nothing's going to happen here or I, I invested in tech in the 90s and that didn't work and i'm not doing it again um so even you know right here in the backyard i could not convince any of the uh you know traditional wealthy uh families or or conglomerates to, to do investments in mm. you know 2011 2012 that has now since changed and so many of the families are you know have started their own vc funds have uh in, done direct investments or have invested in funds we have L, our lps or some of the the families around the region um but that that was very different than mm. uh so yeah it's a good point like Exactly. The, you, I always look as an entrepreneur, you're, you're the crazy one. You're the one that sees <laughs> the, the world differently. Uh, and that that's where value is. And, um, you know, so sometimes you, you see the world differently and it, it doesn't actually turn out like that. And that's, you know, sometimes where failure happens, but that's OK. You went through the experiences and sometimes, you're you know, you're that artist that really does see kind of ahead and into the future and you pave your way. Mm. I think people don't appreciate that, do they? That what a VC has to do, especially a managing partner or a founding partner, that you actually have to go out and hustle just like the founders of startups as well. You know, you're not sitting on top of a big pot of cash from day one. You have to go out to the LPs, potential LPs and pitch the idea of your, your investment hypothesis, right? This is what we want to do. And like you said, that there were a lot of incumbent experiences already around about what Southeast Asia or Asia was. And you also, I guess you pitched a lot to family offices because you mentioned it, is that, you know, and you would have faced a lot of resistance, I think, in the sense that, you know, why should I invest in tech when I can get 12% return on a retail investment, that kind of thing. Yep. That's, that's what you're competing against. What was the, the sort of the turning point for you? When did people start to get it? Were you sort of changing your message a little bit or did you just sort of get a bit more honed in on the kind of people who are going to back the fund? Um, I, when did she, it's, it's funny, quite like, so our, our, the first investors in us, it, it's just like a seed round, like, a, 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 like it was basically people that from the US that didn't really have an interest in Asia, but were like, hey, Vinny, you're doing something or my co-founder, Paul or, or Jeff, no. you guys are doing something. I'll, I'll, I trust you. I'll give you money. Like most angel money for uh, uh, the startup 
you know, that first 100K that comes in from people you know that basically say, if you're going to take that risk, I'll, I'll back you. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the turning point definitely wasn't like we all of a sudden had a conversation that resonated. It was we basically just had to raise money from people that actually didn't have interest in Southeast Asia, mm. uh, but were willing to take a, a, a roll of the dice with us. Um, and then, you know, when we launched our second fund, um, that is where we then got, you know, Tomasa came in, institutional money, like mm. we, we were build, able to build up a track. We had done some phenomenal investments. I've been so lucky to be a part of a ride like Carousel, who you mentioned, uh, Red Mart, which was acquired by Alibaba, um, some of the uh, Money Smart, some of these early companies did really well, raised a lot of money. And then the larger local investors started to take notice that, hey, we've been doing these sort of investments in China and the U.S. for decades. But now there's actually some, you know, companies like Grab also mm. getting really big companies in our own backyard that are doing well. Mm. We've seen a real maturation of the startup ecosystem here locally. And obviously, you know, it's taken people like yourself to pioneer that and take a risk earlier on and fail con, start Golden Gate Ventures, really to sort of get that conversation going when people didn't believe as well. And now it's a case of, OK, people are on board. We have backing from all levels of the ecosystem, which is great. Now we have the success stories. Now we have reason for young people graduating to go and join a startup rather than join DBS or, you know, Roger and Tan law firm, for example. So that's sort of happening. Going back to Silicon Valley as well, and, you know, you spent a lot of time in the Valley. You've worked, at, you know, with different sort of stakeholders in the, the Valley as well. Is that I think one of the, the key elements of the Valley which really made it successful is there's a lot of angels who will invest for the reasons that you said, because they believe in somebody. Like you said, your co-founder, Paul, and you happen to be doing a, you know, a startup with him. I'm in. You know, are we seeing that now in, in, in Southeast Asia? You know, th those sort of startup entrepreneurs who who have now exited and coming back in and you know that's the missing strata that's been for such a long time in asia hasn't it it's that there's institutional money there's early stage vcs even but we haven't had those risk-taking angels there is that changing uh yeah i mean it's like are you are we seeing an emergence of a local second generation a hundred percent we've now done two investments uh in companies that uh, have spun out of uh, other successful companies. So after uh, Renmart was acquired by Alibaba, Lazada, the one of the, the core engineering team that developed the mobile app spun out, started a new company, Rovo. We backed Rovo. That's, you know, kind of that emergence of a second generation entrepreneur. Mm. Um, we recently invested in Sampagon out of Indonesia, which was uh, some early guys at Gojek that worked on the product side. Now, they weren't the co It's not a true second generation. They weren't the co-founders now starting the second company. But they were, in both of these cases, early employees or uh, who had significant sort of experiences within the company breaking out to start their own thing. Mm. So I would call that, you know, maybe generation 1.5. Uh, and I think, you know, a generation takes about seven years to create if I look at U.S. or China. So we're the ecosystem, even though we've been here for uh, eight years, the generate, I would say the ecosystem has really only taken off maybe five years ago. Hmm. Uh, so we have another two or three years before that second generation really emerges. And then they start writing checks and investing and and doing great things like that. Yeah. And the stories get out there as well. That's a key part of it, isn't it? That that encourages people to come through. W where do you think we are? I mean. With the young Vinny graduating from New York, where 
uh, oh, is it ever going to happen? Or are we there? Or is it near the, the sense that some that generation graduating from the US look at Southeast Asia and say, yeah, I need to be there? Because when you came out here, you're a pioneer, so you're a risk taker. But you know, on the on the 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 bell curve, you're in the crazy pot on the edges of people who came to these these markets early on and pioneered. Just have they have you know they did that historically, right, for hundreds of years. But where are we in the sort of startup ecosystem where people say, yeah, I'm going to go to Southeast Asia rather than Silicon Valley? Is that a conversation that's happening? Do you think that will ever happen in our lifetime? Uh, that is, I mean, it's, it's odd timing that you ask that. Like, there's literally a very good old friend company I used to buy in Silicon Valley. They were acquired by Google a few years ago. And I've been saying, come out to here, come out to Singapore, come out to Singapore. Um, and so now he's making a first trip with his girlfriend to kind of check it out to see it, like what opportunity is here. Uh, is it a movement? Like, is there, you know, hundreds of people? No. But, you know, am I able to attract at least one person? Yes. And, and will more come? Most definitely. And the thing is, you know, if I look my analogy is Hollywood. You know, if you, you, you can't take, you can't make a Hollywood movie outside of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I would never want to compete with Silicon Valley and say, hey, there is, uh, you know, you, uh, a platform here like Silicon Valley to make something. But what I'm saying is there are huge opportunities in this part of the world, There's, which is amazing. Um, there's people that don't necessarily have the same experience as a startup founder in the Valley. So by coming over here, you could really, you know, take advantage of your experience and, and create something of high value very quickly. So I think that's the attractive points. Um, where I'm actually seeing the most sort of uh, foreigners come from is actually China. So the number mm-hmm. of Chinese entrepreneurs that we see moving down, starting companies here who are coming off a platform of starting companies in China is actually quite high. And they're going to places like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam. Yeah. Um, so I see more of that coming from China and I would, that probably started, you know, nine months ago. Yeah. Uh, for these guys, it's where the outsized returns still are. I mean, China's a competitive market, isn't it? I mean, it's hugely over competitive in many cases, even though it's, it's, it's a massive market. You know, if you're uh, a Chinese startup, where do you go for those 10 X returns? And I think it's also China is slowing down. So now mm. looking outside all of a sudden becomes way more interesting. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly makes for an exciting future as well. And, um, you know, watch this space. So, Vinny, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you and inspiring as well. I think uh, one, one thing I really like about you is that you're, you know, you're, you're happy to share your experiences as a startup founder as well. You know, obviously, for those that don't understand VCs so well, don't work with them closely, they do have an image which is maybe more historical than anything that you know, a little bit unreachable. But the fact that you've been there is great for a lot of startup founders because it means all the things that we talked about today, like the the intimacy of the working relationship, you know, there's an open door for that as well. And I I like the fact as well that on your um, CV, on your LinkedIn profile, at least you list as one of your experiences as a newspaper boy. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's the first time. I, first time I saw that, I, I just made me laugh out loud because I thought, I thought it's fantastic. Because, uh, uh, well, uh, well, tell, tell us a little bit about why you thought that had to go on your LinkedIn profile. 
Um, uh, yeah, no, nobody's actually picked up on that. So I did put that in years ago. To me, I, I think a little bit, it's like work ethic. Yeah. Like my dad had me, you know, working when I was like in junior high school and it was a part-time job on the weekends and realizing what it meant to actually, you know, earn money. Um, so I look at it as it, for me, I guess it's, it's that work ethic and like, mm. you know, another thing is like, I, I actually never was, uh, I had so many part-time jobs, never, I mean, even like a photographer's assistant holding, you know, a, a light reflector and stuff like that through high school, through college. Um, but one job that I never had that I think is actually an amazing experience is just being a waiter. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, that sort of thing of like interacting with customers, uh, you know, it's a bit of customer service. It's a bit of sales. It's a bit of humbleness. It's a bit of swallowing your sort of pride um, is like an actual excellent experience uh, as part of an entrepreneurial journey. So for me, this was like, yeah, one thing that I kind of learned early on that has translated to who I am today. Vinny Laurier, everybody, founding partner of Golden Gate Ventures. Vinny, thank you so much for sharing that journey with us today. That was really insightful and inspiring. And we'll put all the details in the show notes if you want to reach out to Vinny and just uh, let him know that you listen to this podcast and um, maybe you can tell them a little bit about what you're working on. So you've been listening to Pitch Deck Asia. We are talking to the people behind the ecosystems of Asia. So we're talking to VCs, we're talking to accelerators, funds, co-working spaces, programs, all the people who are the unsung heroes of the Asian startup ecosystem. We all know about the startups, but who are the people behind these startups that really support them, both in their early stages and getting out to scale as you have um, seen with Golden Gate Ventures today. So thanks so much for listening. If you are following on SoundCloud, then you can like and follow us on SoundCloud. Likewise, on any other platform, iTunes or Spotify. Be sure to follow us and um, you know catch us because we are going to publish regular content about the startup ecosystem in Asia. And um, yeah, if you have any comments about today's content, and feel free to reach out. You can comment on these individual podcasts or you can reach out to us at pitchdeck.asia website. My name is Graham Brown. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.